hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 29 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got an insightful interview for you, a conversation with Afton Vetri, the co-founder and CEO of Modern Fertility. Modern Fertility is a women's health company focused on making fertility information more accessible to women everywhere, providing fertility hormone essentials from at-home tests to digital tools and an online community. Modern Fertility is designed to inform women about their reproductive health so they can own the decisions impacting their bodies and future. In this episode, Afton shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Maryland to participating in a science fair in high school that ignited the launch of her first company to working in private equity in New York, where she dug into women's health issues surrounding fertility to joining a number of health tech startups, including 23andMe, where she left to start Modern Fertility, raising over $22 million to date and recently launching her products in over 1,500 Walmart stores. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Afton. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your awesome story and building modern fertility. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So let's get started um, from the very, very beginning. Where are you from originally? So I am from Maryland. Uh, so back on the, the East Coast. Uh, from a, a town co- Wait, no I'm way. I'm from Delaware though. So we're like neighbors. So we're like uh, neighbors. Okay. Yeah. So I'm from Woodbine, Maryland. Oh gosh. It's probably like an hour and a half for, for us to get to, to Delaware. I'm like halfway between Baltimore and Washington, DC and kind of this like rural farmland area. Awesome. What was it like growing up there? You know, I had a great childhood. I think um, it was quite remote. And I really, um, I think I really wanted to get out of Maryland as well. Not because it wasn't fantastic, but I just had this like insatiable curiosity about the, the world. And I had some really cool early life experiences in Maryland that turned me on to entrepreneurship and just life sciences in general. Like what? really taught me. Yeah. So experiences. I, uh, so just, I went to, to public high school. Uh, every kid had to do a science fair project. And so for my science fair project, I remember it was, uh, it was either eighth grade or freshman year. And I noticed that we had to start drinking from bottled water. And so I asked my teacher at the time, like, Hey, like, why did we have to start drinking from bottled water? And they were like, Oh, well, you know, the school failed the water test. Uh, and so everybody had to start drinking from bottled water. And so I went home from school and I was like, Hey, mom and dad, when, when was the last time we tested our water? And they were like, Oh, well, when we moved in, um, you know, 13 years ago. And I was like, huh. And so for my science fair project, I just went around and tested water quality in the area and found out of the that initial cohort of wells, uh, a large percentage of them just massively failed with high levels of E. coli, coliform, oh my gosh. And again, this is like rural Maryland, uh, so everybody was on well water. So basically, you like mm-hmm. dig a. Which you think is better, though, right? Like, isn't it like a better? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways it it is. Um, But what would happen is if you knocked off your well cap, or as I found later for my project, if you had a contaminated well, wells in close proximity had a high risk of being contaminated. So basically I I found this issue. I redid the project and found that they had put in the structured zoning in my community that was allowing wells to contaminate each other. And just 
having this like huge water quality issue. And so wow. I did a massive science fair project on it. I got, I won all of my school, regional, uh, national science fairs and got to go to the international science and engineering fair, which was like <laughs> literally awesome. the coolest thing. It was life-changing. I got to see a panel of Nobel laureates. It was just like out of this world. Uh, but I realized that science is so cool and it could find such amazing things. I understood why there, there were these issues with the water quality in our community. But then I think my, my takeaway was that if you didn't do anything about the, the science, it would just, it would stay as a science fair or as a paper or as a, a presentation. And so from that, I actually started a water quality testing company. Uh, in high school? In high school to, to test the water quality in my community. And I got it to count for community service hours. So kids that had detention could come and like test uh, nitrate, nitrite, pH, like all of these common contaminants. And we would find uh, contaminated well water every week. Wow. Oh my gosh. It makes me want to test my water right now. (laughs) Uh, Since then, I get asked sometimes, like if you weren't so obsessed with fertility and women's health, what else would you be doing? And my other passion in life is water quality. I just, I'm obsessed. I could tell you about reverse osmosis filters and just all of the the fun stuff. I think it's, it's, it's so fun. (laughs) Did you only drink bottled water? Uh, so actually, there was a fascinating report that came out a couple of weeks ago about how uh, there are limited federal regulations that require testing of bottled water as well because of the the state by state regulations. And so bottled water sometimes can be even worse with even worse for you um, than other water sources. And especially if you're drinking that from a plastic bottle as opposed to a glass bottle, just with endocrine disrupting chemicals. So. Unfortunately, when you go down the water hole of, of water, just having a clean natural source is great. <laughs> and I think, you know, especially in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world, um, we're, we're very lucky. But it's still, I think, very important to be water literate <laughs> as you yes. think about your public sources, as you think about bottled water, as you think about well water and routine testing. Um, and so I think bridging the the worlds of deep science with, with public health is definitely an area I can get very excited about. So growing up, were your parents entrepreneurs or what did they do? Were they in science or like, you know, any of this? Yeah. So they met while working in Washington, D.C. Both of them contracted for the the Pentagon. My dad was a COBOL uh, systems programmer, which is like a really old programming language. And my mom was a security analyst at, at the time. And you know, both of them, for better or worse, like didn't really love their jobs. And so I think as a result, I wasn't as into computers as I probably um, should have been. And since then, my mom, um, I have two great little brothers. My mom um, kind of, you know, focused on taking different roles in computer security and now um, does the books of our local um, pick your own farm that's around the corner from our house. And my dad retired a, a couple of months ago, but kind of looking over the the course of their careers, it was, yeah, computer security and different yeah. kind of programming fields, but yeah, not really entrepreneurial. So you said your parents didn't love their jobs. Do you think that maybe led you to want to have a career that you love? I think growing up on this kind of rural farm environment, I, I think my parents loved living in that environment. Um, right before the call, I was telling you about our, our new puppy. We had these like huge 120, do- 120 pound dogs. We had horses. We had, grew our own food before it was like super trendy to, to do that. And I think my parents really loved living in that environment and loved their family, loved their, their kids. And I think that for me though, they come home from work and sometimes not be super excited about the work and environment. And so I think for, for me, um, I think it's, it's really a luxury to, to truly love what you do and not have it feel like work every day. And I think I, I guess, quote, work a lot. But when I look at how I engage with everything in modern fertility, it it really doesn't feel like work. Like I genuinely love, I have so much intellectual curiosity and passion for what we do in the space that we're in that, uh, yeah, I think I was able to discover that entrepreneurship and science did that for me at an early age. I just, I loved building. I loved it. And so continuing to make choices to allow me to live a life where I could make money and sustain myself while focusing on those passions is really a, a luxury. But I, I don't think that there's like a truly a right way to do that. I think if 
you're you're lucky enough to have your your day job check that box as as well that that's great but i think that there are also a lot of individuals that really focus on a specific profession and do that during the day and really find value in in other activities and passions outside of work so i think it's it's a, a series of of decisions around kind of how you want to to structure your your time and and life Interesting. So you're more about kind of just love your life. You don't have to love your job as long as you're loving your life. And that can be, you know, you don't have to, do you know what I mean? Like, is that what you're saying? Like see it from a bigger picture rather than just, you have to love what you're doing in order to live such a beautiful life. You know, I'm on a fertility. We're all about owning the decisions that impact your body and future, whatever those decisions might be. And I think we started as a fertility information company and enabled our customers to understand their fertility and then do more testing to understand those specifics. And I think that that philosophy kind of translates to a lot of the the, the principles that I have about life as well, where as long as you're making intentional decisions about all of these things, kind of weighing your options and moving forward, mm-hmm. I think that there's no, there's no right way to live your life. There's no right time to have kids. There's just different data points and fact patterns that you can kind of pull out and put in your own personal decisions. And I think that understanding and truly accepting that you own those decisions and that those decisions do have trade-offs. So as you wait until later in life to start your family, dependent on that age, uh, the odds of being able to have a child naturally may change. That is it's it's data right that that mm-hmm. may or may not influence your decision but it's it's out there and so i think that really looking at this as there's no right or wrong way it's just a, a series of choices is is really empowering Absolutely. So going back to high school, you, you know, have this science fair, you want to do water testing, and that leads you to start your first company. So walk us through what it was like building your first company in high school. Oh gosh. Well, it was really just kind of making a list and figuring out all of the things that we needed to do to make it happen. So we started, I went to the computer science teacher and I was like, Hey, I, I need to, to come up. Uh, dial up internet was, was really big. And so I was like, okay, like with the internet, we need to figure out a way where we can have a website and people can register this information online and we can export it in an Excel document so we can track all of this, this information. And so I worked with her to set up a website. Uh, We then needed to get all of the components to do water quality testing. And that was going to cost money. So we had to figure out, okay, how how are we going to pay for this? And it was really important to me, especially for the, the community that I was in, is that we we wanted I wanted to have it subsidized in in some way. And so I found a local research and development lab through one of my teachers that really was all about putting money back into the community and had them as a sponsor. Um, so they got their their name on our water quality testing materials to kind of fund a, a large portion of what we were doing. And so it was really this kind of, you know, checklist of, of everything that we needed to do to set up operations and then doing it. And I think doing it is kind of like starting an, an early stage company. You just start doing it. So I would drive, I think it was like right when I got my license. So I would just drive to school super early every morning, set everything up. I would try to get excused from some of my classes early to like coordinate things during the day. I would, during lunch, I would be dropping off all these different things, be testing after school. So it was just grit combined with checklists. And I, I, I really think that's uh, the starting point of, of any company. <laughs> yeah. A long to-do list. Absolutely. A long to-do list. And then you got to try to find your friends to, to come in and, and help you uh, get it done and, and scale it. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. Did you continue to work on the company after high school or what ended up happening? Did you go to college? 
I did go to college. I found a, a new CEO uh, to run uh, Safe H2O West. And then I uh, ended up getting a, a partial scholarship for entrepreneurship to attend the Wake Forest University. And so there I majored in business with a focus um, in new science development, new business development, and then also studied neuroscience uh, and entrepreneurship. So again, kind of mixing and having half of my coursework in hard sciences and, and half in, in business. Awesome. And so did you have any internships or jobs when you were in college? Yeah. So this entrepreneurship scholarship made my college experience kind of atypical. I, I basically had to start companies to maintain my scholarship and then stay in school. And so I actually started uh, three separate companies over the, the course of, of school. The last one was probably the one that was the, the most interesting. Uh, I was trying to decide if I wanted to get my PhD MBA. Again, like kind of further education in both business and science and just continue to go all in. But I was was really, um, I really wanted to learn more about what that PhD component would be and, and really figure out for myself, like, do I like lab research? And so at Wake Forest in um, downtown Winston-Salem, there is the Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So Anthony Atala there was there at the time, uh, like 3D printing stem cell lungs and just all of this crazy stuff. And so I ended up interning for this cool company that was using hair keratin, the protein in your hair, skin, and nails for biomedical applications. So they were doing nerve regeneration, resuscitation fluid, hemostat. And so I interned with them around creating a, a cell culture to, to help to grow. It was basically like an early revenue model for their broader biomedical application. So I had to do like cell culture in the lab every day. I was doing that. I was working at a, a local restaurant in Winston-Salem because I had gotten a stipend to do this, but I was doing that to cover ends meet and make, make rent for the, the summer. And I just, I hated it. I, I respect scientists and people that spend their time in the lab so much, but it was, it was not for me. So I started thinking and, and really digging into this research about keratin, this, this protein in your hair, skin and nails. And I was like, huh, like I'm doing an early revenue opportunity. The, the Brazilian blowout, if you remember those, yeah. those keratin products in the, the early 2000s, um, was really big at the time. And I was like, mm -hmm. huh, what if I take this biomedical great keratin and I apply it back to human hair, skin, and nails. And so I, I ended up digging into this and eventually licensing out their portfolio of patents for cosmeceutical applications and creating a, a separate company, Keratin, around the, the cosmeceutical applications of, of Keratin. Again, made a list, ran a, ran a playbook. And that, that company today is now Virtue Labs based on the initial research that I and idea that I had back in the, the lab my, my junior year of college. Oh, wow. So are you involved in Virtue Labs at all? I've heard of that. I'm not. Um, no, I learned a lot about how to structure or how not to structure your upfront agreements with, with companies and decided that you know from there, I really wanted to understand how to build companies and how to set up the correct structures for pursuing them. And really, I, I think that was a, a big consideration as well as really understanding healthcare more broadly. And so had uh, the really cool experience of, of being able to interview and then accept a job for a healthcare private equity fund in New York City. And so uh, this was a, a lower middle market private equity fund focused on investing all across healthcare. So yeah, I, I thought I was just going to stay in Winston and, and keep uh, building building Kara 10 at the time. Um, but instead moved to, to New York City and went into finance. Oh, wow. So is this after college? Did you graduate already or did you get yes, stay at your graduated. master's? This was my first year out of school. Decided that further education was not for me at the time. And it was time to, to get into the, the real world and, and dig in. And so my, my first job out of school was working for Great Point Partners. Um, actually, a former Wake Forest alumni, Adam Dolder, hired me at that firm. He was an incredible um, boss. And I moved into New York City, did the fun reverse commute every day for uh, three and a half hours a day on public transit out to, to Greenwich, Connecticut, and just dove into the, the world of, of healthcare. Wow. And so how was your experience there? 
my experience there was was great. I had the opportunity to basically look across all of healthcare and identify sectors that were interesting, growing, had some consolidation potential. So I got to play a big role in that process. And then obviously the the firm and, and fund also <laughs> played a pretty large role in that process as well. And so it was there. Um, that was really my my first exposure to to women's health and fertility. Uh, I continue to be really interested in women's health. Um, just kind of the the business and then science part of that was just absolutely fascinating to to me. And I was very passionate about it. And so I um, ended up spending time in women's health, all of these different areas, and really started centering in on fertility and infertility. And from a, a private equity investment perspective, the fertility and infertility space was quite interesting. It was growing rapidly. It was self-pay, which meant it was coming out of, of patients' pockets as opposed to insurers, which was uh, much better from a, a finance perspective and just had... There was a ton of consolidation going on in the space. So I, I really learned the whole sector from a, a business perspective, from a science perspective. But it was really the emotional aspect that stuck with me the most and that kind of translated to my more recent modern fertility experience. I had to go into infertility clinics and would talk to patients in the waiting room who had never told... Uh, no one had ever told them that fertility declined with age. And no one had ever told them that IVF wouldn't work for every single person. And I, I felt like, oh gosh, I was probably 22 at the, the time when you graduate college. I, I had this like really unique view into fertility and infertility. And I was having conversations. And where did this group wouldn't be having for another decade. From? Where did this come from again? Were you doing market research or were you working on a specific project or how did you land on working in the fertility world? Yeah. So the way that this fund would work is that we, uh, as an analyst there, I got to just research and learn an entire industry cold. So I got to understand all of the components of how to make an industry work. And then my job was to make an investment thesis and actually buy a company within that space, obviously supporting my very senior peers at the, the, the time. And so it was through that kind of broader research process that I, I really got this kind of comprehensive crash course in fertility and infertility. Oh, okay. Awesome. Now I see. So now that's why you were in these um, rooms with being able to talk to women about their fertility and they're like, what do you mean it declines with age? I think it's interesting because it's because nowadays it's, we all kind of know that, but I also think there's probably a bit of denial around it. You know, we're all maybe waiting a little bit um, longer. I think women um, statistically are waiting longer to have children now. And it's kind of like, where's that come from? And, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and what research, you know, you've done as to why women are waiting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is such a great question. And I, I, I think in, in starting modern fertility and just kind of looking at where we are now, I think the cultural shift of waiting until later in life to start our families, combining that with the fact that the healthcare system is very focused on preventing pregnancy as opposed to, to planning for it, um, really just translates in the statistics. So the age of first birth in major metropolitan cities is 31 years old. And so I, I think that modern fertility, we, we see all of those statistics, but we still have uh, people with ovaries from all across the US writing in every week saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm 45, I'm 50 years old. I'm thinking about having my first kid. I'm super healthy. And they really don't have the education. Nobody has spent the time with them to help them understand that just because they drink green juice and do yoga and feel great and look great doesn't mean that their ovaries and their reproductive health is on the same page. And so it was really understanding that we have this massive fertility information gap that is fueled by celebrity pregnancies, not telling us the dynamics of their specific journeys and just this, this broader kind of cultural moment that creates kind of this, this difference between expectations and realities. But but all of that is to say, I can kind of consolidate it into the three, um, I'd say like main trends that we we see today that are, are kind of driving um, this. We have one is women are waiting until later in life to start their families. Millennials 
are are starting their families later than any generation in, uh, in the history of the U.S. Uh, we have 20% of millennials that identify as LGBTQIA. So that means that the traditional definitions of infertility or, or fertility just doesn't apply. And then I, I think the broader trend that really led to the formation of modern fertility is the fact that we have so much information about our clean beauty products. We have so much information about uh, buying our first home and financial planners and how to set ourselves up for success. But fertility is just a black box. It's just wait and see, try. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't work, maybe you, there's something you can do about it. Maybe it's covered. Maybe it's not dependent on your employer. And, and that's not good enough. And I, I think modern fertility was really born out of a ton of demand from women saying, hey, this isn't good enough. How do we shift this conversation earlier? Which um, yeah, I think really just ties to this like cultural and educational movement that we're in the midst of. And no one likes to be told they have a biological clock either. I don't know if you were told that as a kid, but I feel like I was told that so many times and it's like, all right, I get it. But also wanted to rebel against it. Like, what are you talking about? I'm healthy. I'm fine. You know, it's like, no one wants to feel like they're on some kind of timer, you know? I um, hate the word biological clock. And that was also the, the worst fertility. We didn't want to use any type of fear-based mongering. It was really just facts. So if you head to mm-hmm. um, actually modernfertility.com slash timeline, you can put in your age that you are now, the age that you want to have your first or next kid uh, and the number of kids you want. And it defaults to kind of the, the recommended inner birth interval. And then you can start to understand what do natural fertility rates look like with age? Turns out there is not a magic cliff at 35, <laughs> but you can really start to look at science and just understand. And there's, again, no right or wrong. It's just how do you start to have the data to, to make the, the decisions that are right for you? So where is the cliff? If the cliff isn't 35, like we've been told forever, then what is the, what, what's the number? Yeah. So the biggest um, impact uh, of natural fertility is age. And the reason for that is that we are born with all the eggs we're ever going to have at birth. And that number goes to almost zero at menopause. Uh, The average age of menopause for American women is 51 years old. And then the fertility transition can occur up to 10 years before that. So when you think of someone that's at 40 today, they can definitely still get pregnant, but it's not always the norm. Not every 40-year-old will be able to, to... be fertile. And so when you really kind of take a a step back and and look at the broader decline, egg quality plays a a huge role there because as uh, these eggs are are in our bodies for longer, rate of chromosomal abnormalities can increase, which play a a role in having a a healthy baby naturally. And so age still does play the largest role. Um, There's not a cliff at 35. It's a kind of slightly more steep acceleration. But really, we see that continuing to go down, starting to go down more rapidly in your your 30s. But there's no kind of magic year. There's no magic cliff. I think the other fact that uh, we're not really taught about is that just every woman has a different metabolism. She has a different fertility curve. So the number of eggs you have in your ovaries is just is not going to be the same for you as it is uh, your best friend, even if you're the, the same age. And while that might not play a role in getting pregnant naturally, it can play a role in your age of menopause onset, it can play a role in your success in IVF or egg freezing if you choose to go that route. And so how do you really have the, the tools, the, the blood tests that we, we offer to, to have that conversation up front? So that's kind of where we, we play in that broader journey. Yeah, I'm curious. And so then, of course, there's the other option of freezing your eggs. What do you think of that whole process? Because I I know, I think a lot of friends view it as an insurance policy, basically. It's like, oh, I froze my eggs. I'm good. I'll just get them back in there when I'm like 45 or you know, who knows what age, right? But what, what are your thoughts about freezing your eggs? Yeah. So I think that egg freezing is an amazing procedure and the options it opens up for cancer patients, um, the options it opens Mm -hmm. up for, for women is just amazing. But I think it is so important for every person with ovaries to understand that egg freezing is not an insurance policy. And I I think really just like taking that in, (laughs) telling all of your friends, amazing procedure, right for some women, but not an insurance policy. And I think that there is this this total misnomer that if you go through this medical procedure, you stimulate all of the eggs that are are present in your follicles and your ovaries at the time, you excrete them out, you uh, flash freeze them. There's basically kind of a a funnel of success for the number of eggs that you've frozen. 
you basically have to go through all these different steps down to fertilizing them with sperm and re-implanting them back in your, your ovaries to, to get pregnant. And success rates really vary um, by clinic. They really vary by uh, the age you were when you froze those eggs and they really uh, vary by the the quality of of those eggs and so it may egg freezing totally may change the odds but i think there is a, a difference between a, a guarantee and an insurance policy um, than from changing the odds odds even substantially um, for for someone in their particular scenario yeah. So it sounds like you're saying there's still so many things, unfortunately, that can go wrong with those eggs, whether it's implantation or whatever it could be, that there is really no guarantee. You're, right. you're trying to you know, sway the odds. Sometimes it works and sometimes it, it just doesn't. Yeah. And I think you know, success metrics have really improved over the years. Protocols have improved. I am a, a fan of, of egg freezing, uh, but I just I think it is right for some women, and women can educate themselves. We have doctor discussion guides. We we have the toolkit, um, and, and that's available at a, throughout a, a ton of, of resources online. But I do think it's a really personal decision, and I think when we take a step back and look at the the space of fertility and reproductive health. I really don't think that egg freezing as it exists today is going to be the procedure that gains mass adoption across the, the U.S. I think that there is a desire in room uh, for new innovations, new technologies to help women <laughs> delay or extend their, their reproductive careers as we refer to them. But I, I don't know if, if egg freezing is the one that will be it. Or, or my hope is that we can continue to progress science and look at research and innovation to get beyond uh, just egg freezing. Yeah, I mean, because I guess I, I don't really know very much about egg freezing, but I assume that it's probably pretty expensive. It sounds pretty invasive. And then, of course, with the IVF or anything past that, it's just very expensive, right? It's like, it's super expensive. So the, the perspective you're coming from is education so that women can really try to make the best decisions with their natural kind of timeline, or if they choose to do freezing or anything else, and they can do that as well. But you're kind of trying to at least prepare them with the knowledge they need to make yeah. the right decision. We are, we are indifferent as a, a company and a platform as to what women do with this mm -hmm. information. We are just focused on providing clinically sound, neutral information to help women navigate these decisions. And I think that there we work with some amazing reproductive endocrinologists. There are amazing reproductive endocrinologists in this this space. But we've also, you know, heard stories of, of new clinics and folks that might push someone towards a procedure that might not be quite right for them. And so I think it's a space that because, you know, in the US having a baby is not a right, it's a privilege. There are no federal rules that that regulate this space. And so I think truly as the space becomes more complicated, uh, it is so expensive. The outcomes change across the board. How can we really empower uh, women to be their own best advocates and have this information at their fingertips so that they can, can make the right decisions? And hey, that might be egg freezing for them. It might not be. It might be never having kids. The rates of uh, voluntary childlessness continue to hit uh, record highs every year. People choosing not to, to have kids because they're they're very happy and fulfilled with the the lives they they have today and so I think that there there is no right or wrong way to to think about things it's really can we play a role with clinically sound neutral information to facilitate that that broader decision and and pathway yeah and so you were working in private equity you started researching fertility you're like oh my gosh there's something here is that what really propelled you to start? modern fertility or what was that spark? Yeah, I think it's really easy to look backwards on your career and tie mm -hmm. all these pieces together. But in the yeah. moment, I just, I was so intellectually stimulated by private equity and learning the ins and outs of all of these new sectors and working with a lot of, of brilliant colleagues. But I just didn't get that, that total fulfillment from investing every day as I did from operating. And when I remembered that, that early life experience of, of just operating, I just, I, I missed it. So I actually, I made the, the really tough decision to just quit private equity without the next job totally lined up, uh, moved out to, to San Francisco and tried to join the earliest possible company I could find. Uh, so there were a few steps between uh, working in, in private equity and starting Modern Fertility 
I was employee number one for this early autism behavior phenotyping company and trying to diagnose young kids with autism and get them early intervention therapy. And then from there, I did a bit of, of consulting work, helping Willow Pump, the really cool wireless breast pump, do their yeah. initial go-to-market. And then went to 23andMe as a, a product manager. I was kind of running their, their consumer tools division. So anything that you could do with your genetic information. And so those were kind of the, the three stepping stones before quitting 23andMe. And again, without the idea fully formed and really kind of digging digging back in and refocusing on an area that had really just been a, a common thread throughout my entire uh, career to that point. Wow. And so what were you doing at 23andMe? Yeah. So I joined 23andMe when they were still shut down by the the FDA. And from my previous experiences after leading finance, I, I didn't know what product was. I didn't know that the, these like digital things and experiences on your phone, that there were people uh, that, that built all of them to manage. Yeah. Like that was a, a totally new area of the world. But when I had exposure to, to what that meant um, at both the autism behavior phenotyping company and managing an external team there to uh, the go-to-market, at Willow Pump, I was just, I was obsessed. And so I, I joined 23andMe and was part of the, the product team that helped to relaunch their FGA cleared experience. And so I really was obsessed with the, the fact that there were medical devices and digital platforms kind of coming together with the FDA involved in, in new ways and just felt like if I could learn <laughs> and understand how to build products in that environment, that it would just be uh, a, a blast. And so that was my my day-to-day. So if you're familiar with 23andMe, I manage DNA relatives. So finding all of your genetic cousins, your raw data tool, just thinking through other kind of interventions that you could do as a next step from your results. Just anything that was beyond the reports themselves that wasn't research. That's awesome. And so you worked at, you know, three awesome companies before starting your own, well, more than that, but, you know, just those San Francisco-based kind of startup world companies. What were some of the biggest takeaways that you have from those experiences? Yeah, well, they... They all sound awesome looking back, but I remember talking to my network about 23andMe and they were in the press, shut down by the FDA. And I would just have some of my finance peers being like, Afton, is this, is this really the move that you want to make? Do you really trust that, that they're going to be able to navigate this? But you know, I, I really, I did. And I think that doing my, my homework and really trying to understand you know, who my boss would be, what the leadership team looked like and what I would be able to learn from that experience. I think sometimes what you learn uh, in a really hard working environment that isn't just a a rocket ship that has customers pouring in every day because the product market fit is so perfect. What you learn from those hard experiences, I think just teaches you at times many more things during a, a finite period of time. And the same thing was true for the autism behavior phenotyping company. It was a great uh, CEO and founder with a great background, but she had had licensed a lot of the technology out from a, a big academic institution. And there was a ton of risk with that. So there was just, there were issues, I, I think with any company, with any early stage company, there are always just going to be these, these life or death issues of the company that you are working every single day to try to navigate. And so when I think across those, those three companies, the way that I've, I've translated that into my job as a, a CEO is I, I think your, your job on a day-to-day basis is to kind of keep a, a list of the, the things that are going to kill the company. <laughs> and hopefully as you grow, that, that continues to evolve and, and maybe shorten or just become a bit different. And your, your job is to build the, the team and put the structure in place where you're constantly um, mitigating those, those risks and just try to have as, as much fun as you, you can while, while doing it. Definitely. And so what were some of those challenges that you faced at those different companies and those experiences you said that kind of made you stronger or helped you be the leader that you are today? I think in early stage environments, there are a couple kind of common threads and things that stick out. So I remember at the autism behavior phenotyping company, I would work with the CEO and we would go through every week and create these like Google slide templates of P1, P2, P3. 
three and not doing. And basically we would kind of orient this list of <laughs> the things that we we had to do that week. Uh, then if we got all of those done, the things that I would do next and then P3s. And then I think that the not doing column of that list was the most important. And you know, you were never totally sure if you were having the right prioritization of that. But I think really holding yourself accountable to being intentional around how you were spending your time and, and what you were prioritizing. I think that's one of the the hardest things about an, an early stage company or, or really any role. And so I think that that was a, a constant challenge. But a solid framework that I I invested in and, and still use today. Cool. And so you left 23andMe to start your own company. What was that like getting it off the ground? And what were some of the things that you used to measure success to say, hey, I think I have something here? Yeah. So I ended up... Um, I was starting a, a company, I guess, a, a bit later in my career. And so I made the decision. I, I built... I, I really like numbers. I like science. I like finance. And so I built myself like a personal financial model for basically my life savings and the amount, which was the, the majority of it, that I would put into modern fertility to, to get it off the ground. And so I think, again, just like fertility, just like your life, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just what's right for you. And so I really... I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the path that I took. But I, I really was excited. And I, I continued, I started to build out uh, modern fertility and just this, this idea with my, my savings. And I basically had a point in time where I either had to, to raise more capital to continue to accelerate the... Because I think I, I, I knew at that time we wanted to start uh, massively growing company and, and have just a lot of upfront internal R&D expense that I would not be able to personally fund. So I basically had a point in time where I basically... I had to raise money or go get another job. I remember the early fundraising experience and walking into VC's offices and telling them that I was building a fertility company for women that were not actively trying to conceive. And I got a lot of confused faces. <laughs> and, yeah. and add on to that, taking fertility and bringing it into mainstream wellness. What? Right. <laughs> Lots of confused faces. And so I, I do feel like every single one of those conversations, though, I really tried to understand how they were thinking about the business, why they were asking the questions that they were asking. And then I would take all of that and, and just rebuild my whole deck so I could start out with educating them on the problem and and then kind of continuing to go down. And, and ultimately in selecting investors, I decided that I did not want investors that were going to have to go home and ask their uh, sisters, daughters, best friends, spouses around you know, how they should think about different things. So right. we were very lucky to find the right partners. Uh, that yeah. was the other thing kind of coming out of a lot Gotta of Gotta love the male investor response. Of, exactly. exactly. Let me ask my wife. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. And then I would get a call back later being like, oh my gosh, like I just, I didn't realize it. I just, I didn't, I hadn't asked before. And so it's, you know, we knew we were onto something, but still got a lot of, a lot of no's. Yeah, I bet. So how much did you raise during that first round when you were out, I guess, raising your seed? How much were you yeah, looking so to raise? First round capital was our first money in, in Finn Barnes. Um, who was there at the the time led that investment. And Finn, just the second that I walked into his office and started talking about it, he got it. And I think that's really because he was a, a product thinker, uh, had an operational background and just the 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 vision of the the future that we wanted to create, he he saw. Uh, and so that round ended up closing at a million dollars with first round leading. We had Box Group, uh, Hashtag Angels, a few other kind of investors come in. And then we also went through Y Combinator, the um, incubator out in, in Palo Alto at about the same time. Awesome. Were you in San Francisco still at the time? I was. And so actually, that was also the time where I convinced my co-founder, Carly, to, to quit her job at Uber and, and join. And we have some funny stories. We would just get lost all the time driving down to Y Combinator because we would just be using this time to really dive in and brainstorm. And then we would both look up and be like, oh my gosh, where, where are we? But yeah, we were kind of back and, back and forth between San Francisco and, and Palo Alto. That's awesome. So talk to me about hiring. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in hiring your team and what do you look for most? 
Yeah. So I think an early stage company or really any company is really, it's, it's just the, the people and the, the passionate group of, of individuals that, that make it up. And if you are really trying to, to go in and change a, a category, that is a, a big lofty goal. And I think in our case, we were trying to, to create a category. We were trying to take fertility and something that was very reactive and make it proactive. And so we didn't know what the team should look like to do this. And this kind of unique mix between the the clinical side, the marketing side, the the product side. And so I think um, Carly and I just spent a lot of time on recruiting, a lot of time on sending cold emails, tapping our networks, looking at LinkedIn, looking at, at other companies and just trying to to learn and understand what, <laughs> how should we write a job description? What does the right role look like? And so I think it was an area that we really invested in talking to a lot of people to try to understand, you know, what are some of the best practices to do this right? And we still have so much to learn. We still have so much to do, but are lucky now to have recruiting uh, team, our recruiter, Danielle, who's fantastic, that helps us with those process, with that process and just, yeah, continuing to have amazing, amazing people that, kind of join our, our mission. And yeah, I think in, in terms of what we look for in terms of, of individuals, we really have tried to, to think about our values as a company and look at candidates and how they tie to um, both those, those values and then the, the roles that we have at, at Bay. And so tell us about one of the most challenging moments and how you overcame it. I mean, how many years have you been working on modern fertility so far? That's a really hard question. So we started the company in early 2017. And I think it's so interesting because when I look back at the issues in 2017 around, we have to, it was just me and Carly and we were trying to set up advertising modern fertility by ourselves on these platforms that we had never used before. And that was really, really challenging. But as I look at just every kind of threshold that we've had as a a company, you build the muscle to really look at those challenges differently. And your kind of threshold of what you even view as a, a challenge challenge just continues to to increase. And so it, it's hard to to put my finger on on just one. I think when I take a step back and look at women's health more broadly, you know, we are starting with the monofertility hormone test as one of the, the first steps in her journey. And then earlier uh, this year, we launched our next two products, ovulation testing and pregnancy testing, which kind of zoom in on her cycle. And as I, I think about, you know, our current product portfolio, as I think about what's next and what we're building on the horizon, there are just so many gaps in women's health. (laughs) This is an area where there is just uh, room for so much research. There's a need for so much innovation. And I think that because we are a physician-mediated direct-to-consumer company, we were founded on the principle that we want to have that direct line of communication with our customers. And so it was really hard for me in the early days hearing all of these fertility stories every single day because I I felt them. I felt every single one of them. I, I still do. And so how how do you stay in this space and build things for your customers, stay present and motivated as a, a leader and kind of combine all of those factors together to, to devise the most impactful roadmap that you can have for the, the future? I think it's, I, I feel so lucky that that is something that I get to, to work on every day. And so I guess that I'll, I'll rephrase my answer. That's my favorite challenge. <laughs> All right. And so you mentioned that you really feel for like your customers and you really you feel for them in so many ways. Have you had personal experiences with fertility that have kind of led you down this path as well? When I realized before starting modern fertility, while I was at 23andMe, that I uh, wanted to get my fertility hormones tested, I asked my OBGYN, hey, can you order these tests for me? Yeah. Uh, and they said, no, you're not actively trying and failing to conceive. Uh, we won't order them for you. So I was like, really? Huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I had to go into an infertility clinic, make an appointment for a consult and get a requisition that I then... I was at 23andMe at the time, which had a very flexible policy, but I 
had an irregular period. And so for women that are not on hormonal contraceptives, we do testing on, we test for these hormones on day three of their, their menstrual cycle. But I couldn't pinpoint the day and like block out time to go get a blood draw. And so it was probably months before I got the, the testing done. But then when I eventually got those results back um, <laughs> as a part of that process and then a consult with a, a physician afterwards, I got formally diagnosed with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it, that is a condition that affects one in 10 women. And I was told by my doctor at the time that I would never be able to get pregnant naturally, but it was okay because they could help with that, which is not the, the correct advice. <laughs> I've oh learned gosh. a lot about PCOS uh, since then. And I, I get asked sometimes, you know, is there one, is that the, the experience that really started modern fertility? But the reality was, I don't think I remembered that happening or I really viewed that as an impactful part of starting modern fertility or remembered it as a detail until like over a year in. The, the part that really stuck out for me was going through that process. I ended up getting a bill in the mail a few weeks later for $1,500 for, for just my laboratory testing. But it was the conversations that I had with women um, coming out of that experience and t- being fairly open about the results that I had back and just hearing from them, hey, like I have these questions too. I really want to check in. I want to learn more about my body. And I think that was truly the most motivating experience that was tied to, to starting um, Modern Fertility and, and trying to, to build this solution and, and shift the way that we were having this dialogue. Yeah. I have a very close friend that just signed up for Modern Fertility the other day and she did the test and I think she's waiting for results now. So, you know, we were talking about this and I was just curious because I know how it works. I guess you prick your finger and then they send it to you guys and you, you send them back the information about their hormone levels. I've been told that, you know, our cycles change every month. So how do you guys kind of tackle that? Because it sounds like it's, it's, do they have to do it numerous times as a customer? Like, what do you suggest? Yeah. So the way that the the hormone, the modern fertility hormone test works today is we customize your panel based on the type of oral contraception, if any, you're on. And so let's say you are are not on any type of oral contraceptive pills. Anti-malarian hormone actually stays fairly consistent throughout the month, throughout your menstrual cycle. You can test that. We test FSH, we test thyroid, we test this this broader panel of of hormones. And what the the clinical recommendation is, is to retest those hormones every nine to 12 months. So within that kind of nine to 12 month timeframe, if you were to, to go to your OBGYN or go to your reproductive endocrinologist and get, get tested and have that snapshot, they're really going to be looking at things over that timeframe. And so we have talked a little bit about before, every woman has a different fertility curve. We all have different metabolisms. And so what we've created in our digital experience is actually the ability for hormones that track over time, like anti-malarian hormone, to actually understand how those those levels are changing with with time. And then we help you understand if that rate of decline is uh, above our, our below average. And so we don't provide medical advice. We don't provide any type of, of diagnosis. You can't do that off of just hormones alone. We really just provide this, this wellness information so that you can have a more informed conversation with your doctor. With other hormones like thyroid, uh, your thyroid levels, there is a, a range that is normal. <laughs> and we that's a, a checkbox. And then for each of these, there's kind of you know next steps that you your um, physician will will take with follow-up. Wow, that's awesome. Well, thanks for going through that because I was always very curious about how that works. What's one of the mis- biggest mistakes you've made in, in building a company for, you know, there's so many hats that you have to wear, so many things that you have to do. Where's the, where's the, when was a time when you're like, oh, I would have done that differently? Yeah. So I think the role of a CEO is to get a C minus, hopefully not an F, but a C minus and a lot of different things, not let any balls drop and then try to hire experts that can do that job 10x better than you would ever dream of doing it and being able to have a really cool collaborative relationship with those folks to get it to the next level. So when I think about my failures on a day-to-day basis, oh my gosh, I don't I don't know where to start. <laughs> I I really think just the the team that you bring on and and hire will will continue uh, along with the the broader strategy to to define success. And so when I look back, Carly and I are always say we should have hired faster. We should have looked at these different points. But I think hindsight is is twenty twenty, and I think we built 
the company very thoughtfully. We didn't want to move super fast and break things in the earliest days because we were dealing with incredibly important medical information and there was zero room for error. And so what we decided to do was really have a a lean team in the early stages, invest in automation that could prevent errors (laughs) and then continue to scale from that point. So I think the mistakes were were plentiful, but it's really continuing to try to to learn from them <laughs> every single day and just keep keep defining that 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 new baseline for yourself. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, personal and professional growth that goes into growing a company, especially as you're going from founder to more of a CEO kind of role. How has that gone for you and um what do you do to improve yourself to kind of best lead your company? Yeah. So I was having a a conversation with another CEO a few months ago and they were like, oh yeah, that transition where as a founder, your job is to to build your product, to build the service that you're going to be giving to your um, customer. And then as a, a founder CEO, you're looking at your company as a product and you you really need to to transition your mindset to to really thinking about all of the dynamics of your company and where it exists in the broader ecosystem as defining your success and i i think that being intentional about that transition is really important and then setting yourself up for success and continuing to create the systems where you are engaging with users and experts and resources around the specific product and offering you have and continuing to make sure that you have a very strong tie to that but then continuing to set up the right systems to enable you to look at your company as a, a product is is a really important transition. So for me, I, I love having conversations and picking the brains of, of experts, people that are 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 gracious enough to, <laughs> to dedicate a, a portion of their, their time to going deep on a, a particular area. And I love just probing them with different questions. I love hearing from them the weakest points of our business, the most exciting points of the the business. I love criticism, honestly. And I love, I just, I thrive on, on people poking holes in different ideas. And I think when you can really dive in and have exciting arguments, you're just, you're building a, a better and better company. And I think for, for us, it really ties back to our, our mission and why we're doing all of this is to truly build better solutions and, and tools for her, for our customers. To, to take fertility and make it something that is is proactive to drive better outcomes, to give her more resources so that she can can own these decisions. And so it, it really all kind of uh, ties together. And so where are you guys now? I know you have some exciting news. You guys recently launched in Walmart. How's that been going? Yeah. So weeks ago, we went live uh, in 1500 Walmart stores across the US. And this was you know, such an exciting moment for us as a, a company. I think all too often, direct-to-consumer brands and even fertility and infertility, the, the conversation is very focused on major cities and, and coastal areas. And infertility and fertility does not discriminate. These are conversations that every single person with ovaries, in our opinion, should have access to. So now for any person going through a, a Walmart aisle in the, the 1500 stores that we're live right now can, can grab a pregnancy test, can grab an ovulation test off of the aisle. These are are priced super accessibly, very clinically sound information. Uh, And not only do they have access to these products, but all of these educational resources that sit behind them. So the modern fertility community, our AMAs with doctors, doctor discussion guides, all of our our rich content. And so I think uh, for us, it was just such a a win to really align with, with Walmart on our, our shared value of, of accessibility. Awesome. And so what's next for modern fertility? Oh yeah, we're we're just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> so I really think we're we're scratching the the iceberg. There are so many things that our our customers are asking for. There are there's are so many great things that are happening in women's health right now, but there are also just massive massive opportunities. And so as we think about our research, as we think about new products, there is a lot on the horizon. <laughs> Are there any high-level trends you can um, speak to? Maybe any trends you've seen regarding COVID or anything like that? 
Yeah. So we, we partnered with SoFi um, at the, the beginning of the year to, for our annual Modern State of Fertility Report. And we were planning on researching how financial health, career, and fertility were, were linked. And right as we were about to, to roll out the results of that study, the, the mandatory shutdowns happened for, for COVID. And so we had the opportunity to reach back out and survey thousands of, of women again across the U.S. to understand how their family planning uh, goals had changed. And so we were one of the, the first research reports that came out around how coronavirus was impacting fertility. And what we found is that nearly a third of respondents were delaying their family planning uh, decisions because of COVID. And the primary drivers there were one, finances with the financial instability around COVID. That was just still a main driver of choosing to, to bring a child into the world. And second, uh, close follow was just trust in the, the healthcare system and trying to understand what that would mean for, for getting pregnant. And so this is, again, came out at the beginning of the pandemic around March. Uh, so things have, have changed since then. And so this is an area that we're excited to, to do some more work and potentially research again, but I think, you know, rapidly changing and, and shifting, but was very interesting at the time. Yeah. I think when we were talking about this earlier, I think um, some people may have thrown in the towel. They're like, ah, fuck it. Let's just go for it. <laughs> Cause the pandemic's not ending anytime soon. I mean, I'm really curious to see what the, are the second round of data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think we have our research from across the, the U.S. We now have our purchase behavior of these products and major retailers. We're, yeah. we're hitting it from from all angles. And so I think, uh, yes, as, as more and more babies pop up into our, our Instagram feed, babies and puppies, I think we're, we're all um, curious about what this will look like from a, a macro perspective in 2021. Absolutely. All right. Do you have any final advice for some entrepreneurs out there listening? Yeah, I think still just diving back to that concept of taking a first step, making that list. That's really, I, I think, the, the core essence of, of entrepreneurship. And so I think um, really just trying to, to map out what are the things I need to do to get to from A to B is a really helpful tool to just be able to, to take a step back. And whether that's starting a company or whether that's making a the next really big decision, I found that that, that framework continues to... Well, well so simple, <laughs> continues to, to, to be really helpful. Do you think you said from A to B? I think that's super interesting because I think maybe a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs especially might be thinking, oh, but I need to know how I'm going to get from A to Z. Like I need to know the full vision before I even get started because what, what am I doing? But you're kind of saying, correct me if I'm wrong just get started, just get started and see where it goes. You don't have to have a grand vision yet. It could develop over time. Just get going. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just defining the right endpoint. And so for us, you know, in starting Modern Fertility, when we were in Y Combinator, the, the way that that program works is you basically have um, a big milestone three months in where you have demo day, where you do a two minute pitch and you have hundreds of investors around the table and you're trying to raise the initial round of, of capital for your, your company. And so uh, what Carly and I did is we built out a Gantt chart. So just kind of, you know, days, days of the week and then tasks and kind of corresponding rows and columns in an Excel uh, document. And we just made a list of everything that we wanted to do in that three months. And we kind of worked backwards from the, those end goals and figured out what had to hit on different days to get there. And then we had a corresponding document, a Google Doc that we called AC, Afton Carly. And every day we would wake up and we would translate the things that were in our Gantt chart to that document called AC. And we would just crank through and <laughs> work through our list. And if new things came up, we would, I would put them on my list. I would put them on Carly's list. Carly would put them on my list and, and back on, on her list. And we would constantly be reprioritizing that list. But we, we have this really kind of like intellectually honest view of when we had to start things for them to be able to hit three months in. And we were looking at that very finite <laughs> three month period. And I think that just kind of having that very specific endpoint, defining what success looked like for us at the end of that three months and working backwards from there really helped us build build momentum and make progress every day. 
That's awesome. And I forgot to ask you, how did you meet Carly? Yeah. So I decided to go co-founder dating. Kidding. I'm starting Wait, modern no, like really the website? Like co-founder well, dating. Well, I use the website. I use a company called that. Oh, yeah. I, I have to be careful then when I, I say that. I did use a website, but what I found was the most helpful was reaching out to friends and former colleagues and saying like, hey, I am looking for a co-founder. Here's the skill set that would be really helpful and complimentary to mine. Does anybody come to mind? And honestly, it was terrifying for me. To yeah. Do. That was one of the hardest things um, and, yeah. and jumps to get over because asking your, tr- your closest friends, your former colleagues to put their name on the line, to introduce you to someone who will inevitably quit their job in many cases to come take a, a bet and build this thing with you. Like that is, uh, I just, I remember my stomach uh, turning every time I would write an email, but yeah, it was one of our, our mutual friends, uh, a guy uh, that I, I went to college with, Eric, that wrote uh, what we still refer to as the most uh, epic introductory email of, of all time. Uh, and I, I met up with Carly. She was still at, at Uber and she started walking her through uh, the space. She came at it from an entirely different angle. What was her skill set that you were looking for? Yeah, so I, I really wanted someone that would kind of tie on from a creative brand component. I, I think I had a lot of exposure to the business side, the finance side, the clinical side, but I think with the level of stigmatization around fertility and infertility, I I knew that I wanted to make fertility something that she wanted to engage with, that she wanted to consume, that she wanted to interact with and then tell all of her her girlfriends. And Carly really had had that skill set and she started her her career on the the agency side, then went to to Google and was a, a part of the the grassroots efforts to get small businesses online all across the US and then at Uber was on the Uber Everything team and helped to uh, launch Uber Eats and do all of their creative and branding and had really just this uh, insane uh, creative track record of being able to, to, to bring all of that together. And so, yeah, we started working together and actually um, worked on our initial content for Modern Fertility and go in these kind of Google document wars to just understand what would it be like uh, to work with each other. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a blast. That's crazy. How long after you guys met, did you guys start working together? Like kind of immediately? Or when did you really officially take her on as a, as a co-founder? Okay. Yeah, it was right at the, the beginning of the company. So I, I had the idea, but I, I knew that I wanted a co-founder. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make of just, you know, how are you motivated? Do you want, do you want to hire a team or do you want to, do you want to have a co-founder? And I, I knew I wanted a co-founder. And so that was one of the, the things that was essential to me that I had in place, you know, when, when raising money and, and starting the, the company. And I, I could not imagine starting Modern Fertility with anyone else. I could not imagine being where we are today without Carly. And so I'm very, very grateful for our, our continued partnership. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your incredible story and building your company, Modern Fertility, sharing your entrepreneurial advice for the listeners out there. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.